The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. You'd open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, where we will be today. We are taking up the next message in our series on uh, the communion of the saints or our common union in Christ. I've referred to it as both as we've been uh, working our way through this. And when we began this series, we started by really looking at how our communion together is rooted in our common union in Christ. That uh, the communion of saints is built upon the fact that we're all individually, as believers, one with Christ. And through that oneness with Christ, uh, we have been bound together in him. And the second message in that series, we looked at John 13 on love as you know the bond that holds us together. And what, we're, what, we, what we began to see there and will continue to see is that that is central. That love for one another that flows out of our love for Christ is central to the, to the communion of the saints. And it's... it's permeating the entire rest of this series. The last message we looked at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that was the formal expression of our union, or of our common union in Christ, and that that was marked out by this deep consideration of one another that's manifested in stimulating one another to love and good deeds and encouraging one another, and doing that primarily through our assembling together on the Lord's Day as we are now. But we saw in that that the motive, the motive that drives that is our love for Christ and our love for one another. And now today what we're going to come to is uh, what I'm just going to call the informal expression or the broader expression uh, of our common union in Christ. Galatians 5.13 says that we are to use our freedom that we now have in Christ to serve one another in love. So again, we see this idea of love coming into play. And we're going to consider some particular ways we do that in the next message. Uh, But today what I want to do is focus on what this text brings to us regarding the broader expression of our common union in Christ. Because what we have in this passage here is an exhortation to us to persevere in our love for one another. And we're going to be looking primarily at verses 9 and 10, but in a moment here I'm going to read 1 through 10 to set the context. Uh, And 1 through 10 is essentially a series of exhortations. And the passage we're focusing on is the end of that, essentially the summary of that. And what it is, is it's an exhortation Uh, to persevere in this love for one another. And we're going to see three things come out of that. Uh, Our perseverance in love, the rule of love, and the objects of our love. So let's give attention to the reading of God's words now as we take a look at Galatians 6, 1-10. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever, is, whatever a man sows, this he also will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, as we consider this broader expression of our common union in Christ, uh, and that we need to first persevere and love to one another, uh, Paul here begins verse 9 with, and let us not lose heart in doing good. Okay, so he gives this same exhortation to perseverance really twice. He gives it once in the negative in verse 9, don't lose heart in doing good. And he gives it once in the positive in, in verse 10, where he basically says, do good at every opportunity you have to do it. But we have to ask, why do we need to be encouraged to carry on in what we want to do as Christians? And our Lord has commanded us to do. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, if we're truly converted with a regenerate heart and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, united to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our heart's desire to love Christ, and an outworking of that is to love His people. It's what we want to do. Why do we need this encouragement? I mean, after all, wouldn't it be normal for us to want to do this? Well, there's a very good reason for the need for this encouragement, not only here, but other places in Scripture as well. And it's necessary because of life in a fallen world and remaining sin in us. You see, loving one another by being immersed in truly knowing one another and being attentive to one another and acting in one another's best interest in every circumstance is just plain difficult. And we can grow weary of it in the weakness of our flesh. Sacrificially loving one another is contrary to our sin nature. So we have to overcome a natural reluctance of the flesh through walking by the power of the Spirit in our new nature as new creations. And on top of those natural inhibitions in our fallen state and remaining sin, there are still many other obstacles and discouragements along the way that can just be a bucket of cold water on the flaming zeal of our best intentions. There are unpleasant circumstances in which we are called to love and do good to one another. There are difficult and ungrateful people that we are called to love and do good to. Sometimes the need for others can be so great, we can be overwhelmed by the greatness of the need and not even know where to start or how to go about it. 
How many times have you been confronted with a circumstance that you know there's an opportunity here, but the need is so great you go, I don't even, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know where to start. I have no idea what to do uh, to be of some good and some use to this person. There are also those times that we can invest ourselves in the lives of others over extended period of times and see no results whatsoever come about. And all these things can hinder and exhaust and weary and overwhelms us. And sometimes it feels like it is just sucking the life right out of us. And that's really what Paul means here when he says, and do not lose heart. You know, our common vernacular of it's sucking the life out of me is really a very apt description of what he's talking about here. Because it speaks to a weakness of heart that leads to a relaxed effort or a slacking off of effort that eventually results in just giving up and laying down any power to act. It means to be so wearied and mentally exhausted that we are spiritless. Have you ever found yourself in that position? Where you just you look at the need and say, there is nothing left in me. That we are so faint that we lose the courage to take action. And instead, there is a desire to withdraw from the arena of spiritual battle and just plain quit. There is a strong temptation to just want to take it easy. Let this be someone else's problem. Not bear this burden any longer. And you just want to make it all go away. But that's really not an option, is it? You see, to turn away from loving the brethren is to turn away from Christ. This is not an option. But it is a very real temptation in this spiritual warfare that is a Christian life. We are called to love the brethren. We are called to serve one another in love. We are called to bear one another's burdens in doing good to one another. And we are to be engaged in that which is, to use the old word, beneficent. Okay, or what is absolutely good, or beautifully good. Uh, one commentator called it acts of generosity robed in love. That's what we're called to. And we are to be engaged in it, in, in, in this unwearied well-doing. Well, recognizing these weaknesses, the Apostle Paul then gives us some encouragement to this end in this very text with the promise that we will reap in due time if we do not grow weary. See, when he says due time, it has a temporal sense of a decision, a a, a decision point. And the seriousness of the decision is given a new intensity. We see it used over in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. It says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time because the days are evil. 
Colossians 4.5 uses it well. It says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. You see, we feel the here and now, but not your tension, not yet tension of the approach of the end of the age. This simultaneity of end and present fulfillment poses a demand, and it confers an ability for recognition and outworking in love, and it brings us to a decision point. And the Apostle Paul presses upon us that the time is short, and we must act in love towards one another now, so that we may reap at the time God has appointed for the reaping. You see, the word time in verse 9 is the same as translated opportunity in verse 10, and is used in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4, points to the harvest at the end of the age that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13.30. So this image of sowing good works that will be reaped on the last day indicates to us that this sowing we're to be doing, these good works we are to be engaged in, lasts all of our lives. So we are not to lose heart because our labor is long and the harvest is slow in coming. When God delays the reward of the Christian, it can be a temptation to cease in well-doing, but take note that this encouragement force is conditional. If, if we do not grow weary in well-doing, we will reap in good time. We must persevere in the faith. We must persevere in loving one another. God will indeed recompense your good works. We have that promise from Him. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord. Your works are not in vain. Matthew Poole likened it to the farmer who plants his crop then grows impatient when it is not immediately ready to harvest. And instead of waiting for his crop to grow ripe for the harvest, he plows it up and sows the field again. And if you think about that as a farmer, you go, well, that's ridiculous. Just plant it and let it grow. And that's what he's saying here about our good works. Persevere in them. Plant them. Let the Lord grow them to what they will be. For your harvest comes in the last day. Our doing good is not in vain, although the harvest is yet to come. We sow in this life, we reap in the next. So don't hastily plow your crop under by giving up. We have this promise from the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 15.58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This brings us now to the rule of our love, which is expressed when he says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good. Now the inference of the preceding exhortation to not lose heart is that we would seek to do good while we have the opportunity. And he says it right here. And again, the word opportunity here is the same word as the word time in verse 9. 
And it does, in fact, refer to that due season or due time reference there, which is this life. So just as there is a time for reaping, there is also a time for sowing. And the sense of urgency of our passage implies the time for sowing is quickly passing. Christ is coming. He is coming soon. And the time for sowing is passing. So this exhortation is to do this good while it is in season. We will not always have the opportunity that we have right now today. This is the time that God has commanded and given us to sow to the glory of His name. So let us be diligent in it. One commentary said the whole life is, in one sense, the seasonable opportunity to us. And in a narrower sense, there occur in it more especially convenient seasons. The latter are sometimes lost in looking for still more convenient seasons. Do you get what he's saying? In a general sense, this life is the season. This life is the opportunity. But within this general season of life and opportunity, God, by His providence, is going to bring to you particular opportunities and seasons to do good. And He's saying, don't let them pass because you're looking for a more convenient time to do good. You see, we don't do it when it's convenient to us or somehow serves our interests as well. We do it whenever we have opportunity. We do it when God providentially provides that. And sometimes the opportunity can come at the most inconvenient times, do they not? We can have the desire in the heart to be a blessing to others. But if we don't translate that desire into action, at the moment of opportunity that God provides, we have failed to love one another. Cotton Mather said, the opportunity to do good imposes the obligation to do it. No matter how often these opportunities arise, no matter how much we are expended and spent in this, even exhausted in the doing, no matter how much self-denial is required, if we have opportunity to do good, it has been provided to us by our Lord, and it is a privilege we should be thankful for and take up with all of our might. God gives these opportunities, but understand this also. God also gives us the power to persevere in them. We are not doing this in our own strength. So let us take up every opportunity that He gives us at every occasion as they present themselves. Hendrickson said in his commentary, the best way to prepare for Christ's second coming is to use to the full every opportunity of rendering service. God has given us this season to do good. God brings to us each individual occasion to do good. God empowers us to the doing of this good by His indwelling Holy Spirit. So prudent Christians make full use of the grace given to them to glorify their God in the doing of this good. Now the word translated good here in verse 9, or in verse 10, is not the same as in verse 9. 
however it is used synonymously. It refers to that which is upright, honorable, and acceptable to God in rendering service. So it is very fitting to the Apostle's point here. It has in view that what is good in its result or effect in the thing which is good in each case, so it is that which is particularly fitting to the circumstances of each opportunity that arises. Okay, so what he's getting at here is it's that thing that is particularly suited to the need at hand and answers that need. And this brings us back to what we saw in our last message in Hebrews 10, how we were to consider one another. And we saw how that was uh, uh, you know, a, a deep study and knowledge of one another so we might know one another's temporal and spiritual condition. This is necessary to know what is fitting to the circumstances, know what is fitting to the need. Now, in our next message in this series, we're going to look at some very particular things that the Scriptures point out to us that would fall into this category. Uh, things that Scripture particularly, essentially tells us, listen, you need to make sure you're serving your brethren in this way. But, but it is much broader and wider than that. This is, that will not be an all-inclusive list. So we have to ask, well, what constitutes a good work? What constitutes... Uh, these good works were to be doing to others. Well, the Scriptures lays out the contour of that for us. Uh, first, this good work is going to, of course, be anything according to God's law, anything consistent with God's word and His will is revealed to us in the Scripture. Second, we have to understand truly good works can come only from a converted heart walking in union with Christ. Now, since we're in a series on that very issue, it's kind of a given here, but we can't let it go unsaid. Okay? Uh, truly good works can only come from those who are united to Christ and empowered by Him to walk in those good works He has prepared beforehand for us. Ephesians 2.10 But thirdly, we see that truly good works proceed from the principles of of faith, hope, and love residing in a sanctified soul. That those who are indwelt by Christ, okay, who have been blessed with the gift of faith, who live in hope, resting and trusting in Christ, who are motivated by the love of Christ and the love of the brethren, these good works flow out of that work of sanctification He's doing within us. Fourth, these good works are driven by, by the gospel motive of love. You know, again, as I said in the opening, uh, as we proceed in this, we just see how love is central to everything. Uh, you know, there is no communion of the saints without love. We are not together without this love. And this love is the gospel motive. It's a love of God. It's a love of obedience to God. It's a love of God's law as our rule of life. Uh, it is out of this sense we have of our deliverance from condemnation and this sense of our eternal security in Christ that, that we are driven and motivated to love others. 
It's out of the promise we have and our hope of eternal life. And it's out of the example we have of our Lord. These are all gospel motives that should move us uh, to love one another with these good works. Fifth, these good works are carried out in a firm trust and reliance upon God's grace to perform them acceptably. We have to remember, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So we are totally dependent upon His grace and His goodness. So we come to this, these works, we undertake these works, hoping in Christ, out of our love for Christ, with a gratitude to Christ, and in humility, recognizing we are not even worthy to be His servants. Yet, yet, He has called us to be His servants. He has empowered us by His grace. And He has graciously given us this opportunity to love one another. And then last, but definitely not least, we do these things to the glory of God who has sent His Son to save us. And we do it for the good of others. And that brings us to our last point, the object of our love. It says we are to, to do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, as I said before, this entire section is a series of exhortation to do various good things for the brethren. And John Eady in his commentary said, this verse seems to sum up all these thoughts into one vivid injunction, which not only comprises them all, but enjoins similar social duty in all its complex variety. You get what he's saying? It's summing up the ones specifically listed here, okay? but it's also enjoining and commanding us to every other good work. It's not limited to what's specifically listed here. He goes on to say, whatever its immediate form, whether kindness or beneficence or mercy, whether temporal or spiritual in character, it is still good in its nature and is the good thing adapting itself to each case as it may turn up in reference to all. So here's what we need to understand. We owe this love to all. Remember, the commandment for Christians to love one another did not abrogate the command to love our neighbor. We owe this love to all men because we all have a common nature, a common nature as image bearers, a common nature as fallen creatures, and we have a common need that arise out of that common nature and common condition. The point of the text is that what we owe to all we especially owe to those united to Christ. Not in a graduated sense of owing more of it to them, but in a sense of priority. We owe it first. We owe it chiefly to our brethren. Another way to say this is, our benevolence starts at home. And that is because we have a sacred relationship with one another, established by God, who has bound us together, in our common union in Jesus Christ. 
We have a nearer relationship with one another because we are all God's adopted children and we are of the same household. The household of God, or as stated in our text here, the household of the faith. And that's exactly the the meaning the word household is intended to, to, to convey to us. It means related to or belonging to a household. So it indicates intimate relationship. The faith refers to the Christian message and teaching. So what's in view here is those who collectively hold to the Christian faith or teaching who are of the same household. And we see this expressed in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Paul wrote, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What's he saying? Those of us who hold to that common confession, we are of the household of God. And we especially owe this love to them. Spurgeon said, extend your love, your charity to all mankind. But let the center of that circle be in the home where God has placed you, in the home of his people, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. They have a first claim upon us. They are the nearest of kin. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let them have a Benjamin's portion. Brothers and sisters, now that we have been set free from sin, we are to use our freedom to serve one another through love. This is difficult and unending, but yet it is a delightful duty of the Christian for which God thoroughly equips us by His grace. We can tend towards discouragement when pursuing such love in a fallen world. And I'll tell you right now, you want to know what our main discouragement is? What's our main discouragement? It's simply this, the recognition that we fail to love as we ought. That's our main discouragement. Because we come to the realization, I can't do this. When we look at how Scripture lays it out for us, if we're all honest, we're going to look at the mirror and say, I can't do this. I am not able to do this. I am not up to this. This is beyond me and my capacity. But I want to take you back to verse 1. Look back at 6.1. Brethren, who's he talking to? Those united to Christ. Even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual, bear one another's burdens. What does he mean when he says, you who are spiritual? In our day and age, it means some, some kind of mystical, empty-headed fluff. That's not what the Apostle Paul meant. You who are spiritual means you who are in the Spirit. You who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You who walk by the Spirit. 
You who have received gifts of the Spirit. Do you see where I'm going with this? We are not on our own in this. We are those who have died, been buried, and risen to newness of life in Christ, have received the new birth, and now living, now in living vital union with Christ, with His life flowing through us as the vine gives life to the branch. We are indwelt by His Spirit. We are empowered by grace to now love as we ought. And you know, it's this very issue that Romans 6.11 addresses. In that passage in Romans 6, after Paul reminds us of who we are in Christ, united to Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, he then says, consider these things. Same word we saw last time in Hebrews 10. Deeply immerse yourself in the consideration of who you are in Christ. Immerse yourself in this gospel truth. I am dead to sin. I am alive to Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In Christ, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, my Father knows my every need before I ask, and He bids me ask, and it shall be done for me. Those are all gospel promises. We have every last one of them. So brothers and sisters, when we come to that recognition, I don't love as I ought. I fail in this over and over again. Ask for the faith to believe. Ask for the grace to love. Ask for the courage and strength when the opportunity comes to put aside the weariness of life under the sun and do good to one another as an outworking of your love for one another in Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to a text like this. We, we hear these commands of what you call us to. And Lord, Lord, don't let us be like the Israelites where we say, all that you have commanded we will do. But however, let us say, Lord, all that you have commanded we desire to do but we recognize our weakness and our failure and our inability. So Lord, give us the grace. We believe, help our unbelief. Lord, empower us by Your Spirit. Lord, strengthen us through Your Word. Lord, give us the grace to love as we ought. Father, we pray that You would work this out in us now and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow as long as this due season lasts until you return, and, and, and in the next life, we reap that which has been sown in gospel grace. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.